0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering the Articles of Faith and Official Declaration Number 1 and 2. And before we start, just know that we're probably not going to be spending a lot of time on the articles of faith. The bulk of this podcast will be discussing Official Declaration Number Two, the extending of the priesthood to all worthy males in 1978. And we're just going to mention a few things about
0: Official Declaration One, which is the official manifesto ending plural marriage. But considering all that we did in our podcast for Section 132, we presented the history of plural marriage both its beginnings and its endings. So just a couple minor things that we may want to point out
1: now, and then we're going to jump into official declaration too. Yeah, I think that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. The one article of faith I just want to mention, I mean, the articles of faith are wonderful. We should read them. And depending on your audience and who you're working with and who you're teaching, you certainly could have a marvelous discussion about the articles of faith in a classroom setting or in your family. But the one that I want to read that I think pertains to these two official declarations is number nine. Article of faith number nine reads as follows. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And the reason why I like that, and I want to use it as a springboard for our discussion today, is we believe in a church that receives revelation. And as the prophets move forward and as the church moves forward, new things are revealed and the Lord and His will is made manifest in the lives of the members of the church. As we do our best to reflect His will, and we do it imperfectly, but as we do this and as we try, we get more light and knowledge. And as we move forward, then we get more light and knowledge. And that's kind of the the idea that I want to communicate at the start of this podcast. Uh, first of all, that. And then the second one is just a request for everyone to be charitable. We are going to be talking about some very difficult issues and frankly, sometimes they're very painful, and we acknowledge this. And like you, we're doing our best. We we would ask you to grant us charity as we would grant you charity, as we go through the history and try to understand some of the nuance of these historical issues, at least as we understand them today. And we're going to invoke the spirit of Moroni in Moroni chapter 9, verse
0: 31, where he says, condemn me not for mine imperfections neither condemn my father for his imperfections rather give thanks unto god that he hath made known unto you our imperfections that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been we in no way are trying to condemn any one of any dispensation or generation and their understanding we believe that people moved forward with the best light that they have but that that light is ongoing and growing we think that some things have come to light in our generation and the last 20 or so years that really bring some clarity to some of these issues. And in no way do we intend to discredit or condemn anyone who spoke even vigorously before without the light and knowledge that has come to pass in our day. What we're trying to do is invite each one of you to examine the events, the facts, and come to your own conclusions. So as we proceed, we would just ask for your kindness as we're just trying to not condemn, but help all of us move forward with light and understanding. So, Mike, what do you
1: want to add about Official Declaration 1, the end of plural marriage? Yeah, so I think we have spoken about the law of adoption, as you mentioned in Section 132, as Wilfrid Woodruff received more light and knowledge, and as he worked through his understanding of the law of adoption and as he incorporated the idea that we're sealed to our families, that we're blood-related to, all the way back to Adam and Eve, as he saw this and moved in that direction... And as he saw the federal government coming in and taking away properties of the church and putting our leaders in jail, as he saw this, he had experiences with the divine. I'm just going to use his words. And this is what he said. I've had some revelations of late and very important ones to me. And I will tell you what the Lord has said. Let me bring your mind to what is termed the manifesto. Wilfrid Woodruff says, The Lord has told me to ask the Latter-day Saints a question, and he has told me that if they would listen to what I said to them and answer the question put to them by the spirit and power of God, they would all answer alike and they would all believe alike with regard to the matter. And the question is this, which is the wisest course for the Latter-day Saints to pursue, to continue to attempt to practice plural marriage with the laws of the nation against it and the opposition of 60 million people at the cost of the confiscation and loss of all the temples? And the stopping of all the ordinances therein, both for the living and the dead, and the imprisonment of the first presidency in twelve, and the heads of the families in the church, and the confiscation of personal property of the people, all of which themselves would stop the practice, or, after doing and suffering what we have through our adherence to the principle, to cease the practice and submit to the law, And through doing so, leave the prophets, apostles, and fathers at their homes so that they can instruct the people and attend to the duties of the church, and also to leave the temples in the hands of the saints so that they can attend to the ordinances of the gospel, both for the living or the dead? That's his question. And then he says, the Lord has shown me by vision and revelation exactly what would take place if we did not stop this practice. All the ordinances would be stopped throughout the land of Zion. We would then be compelled to stop the practice. And so what should we do? I put the question before the Latter-day Saints. I want you to answer it for yourselves. He also says this, I should have let all the temples go out of our hands. I should have gone to prison myself and let every other man go there, had not the God of heaven commanded me to do what I did. And when the hour came that I was commanded to do that, it was all clear to me. I went before the Lord and I wrote what the Lord told me to write. I leave this for you, for you to contemplate and consider. And so that is the context of the revelation that he received concerning the discontinuation of the practice of plural marriage. I really do appreciate where he says, if the Lord told me to keep the practice moving forward, I would do it even if I had to go to jail. But I know that this is the direction that we should go to keep the temples open and to have the church to continue to flourish. It is requisite that they cease the practice of plural marriage. And so... That's what he does. And I like where he says, I saw exactly what would happen and what would come to pass if there was not something done. And I have had the spirit upon me for a long time. Personally, for me, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that official declaration one was given. I'm grateful that the saints were willing to do what was required of them. I'm grateful that President Woodruff received that and that he shared it with the saints and that the saints complied. I know in the midst of that statement, there's a lot of difficulties and there's a lot of history. It didn't all happen at once. People struggled discontinuing the practice probably as much, if not more, than they did to start the practice. And I know that plural marriage is complicated and it's foreign to our culture. And so we acknowledge it. And I do think that that is one of the things that is difficult for some members because there were members of the church who saw this and they struggled They wanted to continue to do the practice of plural marriage, and I think what this was was a test to see, are we able and willing to follow a modern and living prophet? That's kind of why I read Article of Faith number 9, because I think that Article of Faith has relevance in today's discussion, especially as we're talking about some of these rather difficult issues. As
0: President Nelson has stated, the restoration is an ongoing process. It has not been completed. We may have all the keys that we need, but we certainly don't have all the understanding and we're not moving forward with all the direction that we need, that we believe the Lord is going to open up and help us understand even things of the past, not just things of the future. So thank goodness that we are led by prophets, seers, and revelators who receive
1: incremental light and additions that we need to move forward. Yeah. And I would refer our listeners to Mackley's book on this. I think her book is the best book on this subject. So now Bryce and I are going to spend the rest of the podcast going into Official Declaration 2, and there's a lot of different ways to approach this topic. And to begin with, Bryce, why don't you give us a lens, a lens by which maybe it can give us ways to view this in ways we haven't considered, and also a lens whereby we can see other complex issues in church history or even in doctrine, things that are difficult sometimes. I really think this is a powerful way to examine this topic. Thank you, Mike. In
0: 1979, President Bruce C. Hafen, who was president of Ricks College at the time, went down to Brigham Young University in Provo and spoke at a devotional. His subject was Love is Not Blind, and it was an address about ambiguity and the church. In short, he said there's three levels of dealing with ambiguity and the ambiguity that comes up because the ideal and the real aren't often the same. There's this ideal church and then there's this real church. And sometimes there's a discrepancy between the ideal and the real. And there's three ways to deal with that ambiguity. Level number one is what I call, this was not Bruce Hafen's words. These are my words. Level number one is kind of an innocent optimism. It's the view that everything's perfect in the church, that it's all gold, that the prophet receives pure revelation, that everything is rolled out exactly as it's supposed to be. It's all divine. There's no human error. It's kind of an innocence that I just want to see the ideal. Unfortunately, some people become very familiar with the gap between the ideal and the real. And stories in church history or issues or modern situations force us to realize that things aren't as innocent or as optimistic as we had hoped. And so those people sometimes shift And they become what I call pessimists. They let the discrepancy between the real and the ideal push them to pessimism. And they come out and say, well, then there's no revelation and and there's no inspiration and there are no prophets and we haven't done anything right. And they throw out all the good because of this ambiguity.
1: Bryce, let me interject here. Teachers, sometimes we set up the problem and we make it worse Because when we teach, and I've done this, I'm sure you have too, when we teach everything is awesome, everything is perfect, and then when they find something that's a piece of evidence that contradicts that, it really causes problems. So as teachers, we have to be careful. Right. We have presented material
0: on one extreme, and then the reality pushes sometimes students to the other. For example, I grew up with no pictures of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon using a hat. Every picture I ever saw about the translation process was Joseph either looking at the plates or there's a veil between he and Oliver, but I never ever saw a picture of Joseph using a hat. When the reality hits and people find out that Joseph put his head in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon, at least for part of it, at right? least for a part of it, they feel like the church has led them astray, that the church has hidden some truth and tried to keep things away, and they go all the way to pessimism. And then they throw out the whole translation of the Book of Mormon because they feel like they've been lied to or misled, simply because no artist ever painted that in the artwork that
1: the church uses. Or we didn't teach it. And here's the danger, too. When you're in a classroom and you're teaching and you introduce some ideas that have some layers or nuance and other perspectives— Sometimes the students in the class, depending on the class, they could look down at you as a teacher and say, well, where's your faith? So there's that problem, too. Right. And so we've got these two extremes, the the
0: innocent optimism that everything's totally perfect, and then the opposite is pessimism where throw everything out because nothing's right. And so President Hafen invites us to a third level, and that is kind of in the middle, where we have eyes open but hearts open as well, that we are not hiding the fact that there is a human element to this church and its history, that imperfect human beings have done human-like things in church history and will do so again. So, our eyes are open to the human nature of church leaders and church history, but our hearts are open as well. We're not going to be so innocent that we can't deal with the reality, but we're also not going to be so pessimistic that we can't include the ideal and find some balance between them. So today in our podcast, Mike and I are going to present information truths, historical facts, whatever title you want to give to them, we want to throw some points of view out there that might be new information for you. And if you're one of the ones who held on to certain conclusions about why the ban on priesthood was in place, maybe it's time to open our hearts, open our eyes, and see some other realities, and come to some different conclusions, to hear with an open heart some of the light that has come into the church in the last 20 or 30 years, specifically, I would say, since 2013. I think a major contribution has come in the new edition of the Scriptures in 2013, and as more and more information to Joseph Smith and early writings have come to light. So as we throw some information out there, would you be open-hearted and recognize that things aren't necessarily as ideal as maybe we had come to conclude? The other side of that is we would invite those who've gone to the other pessimistic side Some of them conclude that Brigham Young was racist or that the church is a racist organization, and that's their conclusion based on the fact that priesthood was withheld. But we're going to talk about the dilemma that they were in, the circumstances which they faced, and we would invite you on that extreme to be open-hearted. Open-eyed, I think you clearly are, but open-hearted we could do better at, and put ourselves in Brigham Young's position, the early saint's position. This issue is a little difficult because as you read the gospel topic essay for this topic, there really isn't a conclusion that the church has come to. And part of my frustration as a gospel teacher is I don't know exactly what conclusion I'm supposed to come to. And absent a definitive, well, here's the church's conclusion, I would suggest to all of us that maybe we need to come to our own conclusions in light of all the information that we have. For example, during the ban, during the 126 some odd years when the priesthood was withheld to blacks some people came to certain conclusions. Some of them involved the book of Abraham. Some of them involved theories about Cain and Ham. Others jumped to conclusions about premortal valiance. And bless their hearts, I think they were just trying to come to answers with the information they had. And they came to conclusions about Cain and Ham and premortal life And yet, here is the official statement in the gospel topic essay. If you will turn in your gospel library to the gospel topic essays and open up Race and the Priesthood essay, at the very bottom, it says the church today. And this paragraph, I'm going to read it word for word. Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous action in premortal life, that mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any color or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism past and present in any form. Since that day in 1978, the church has looked to the future as memberships among Africans, African-Americans, and others of African descent has continued to grow rapidly. While church records for individual members do not indicate an individual's race or ethnicity, the number of church members of African descent is now in the hundreds of thousands. The church proclaims that redemption through Jesus Christ is available to the entire human family on the conditions God has prescribed. It affirms that God is no respecter of persons and emphatically declares that anyone who is righteous, regardless of race, is favored of Him. The teachings of the church in relation to God's children are epitomized by a verse in the second book of Nephi. The Lord denieth none that cometh unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. All are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. That word disavow is a significant word. If we have come to conclusions that a certain skin color was denied the priesthood because of ancestors or... Previous action from other people, or if we came to a conclusion about valiance in the pre mortal life, those conclusions may have been based on what light they had at the time. But today, we need to set those conclusions aside. Yeah. It's really troubling when you read some of the things that that were said. Yeah. And those conclusions need to be disavowed. So as Mike and I go forward, we're just going to simply try to lay on the table all the information that you may need to come to a conclusion about race and the priesthood. So I'm going to start with a piece of information that comes about about the time as Joseph Smith was going into the Grove of Trees and receiving the first vision. The United States was letting states into the Union— in pairs. They were divided over the issue of slavery. The northern states were opposed to slavery and didn't want more representatives in Congress from the southern states that would pass laws that they were opposed to. And the southern states were opposed to the northern states having more votes in Congress. So they would only let states into the Union in pairs, a slave state and an anti-slave state. That kept the balance in Congress. So they had pretty much come up with a line of latitude that said states above this line are free states and there's no slavery. States below that line are slave states. And so they would let one northern state in and one southern state in. The problem was Missouri and Maine. Maine wanted to come into the Union, and Missouri wanted to come into the Union. But Missouri was above that line of latitude. And Maine was clearly above that line of latitude. And we couldn't let two non-slave states into the Union. That would throw the balance of power out, and the South was opposed to that. So we compromised. The Missouri Compromise of 1820 allowed Missouri into the Union as a slave state above the line of latitude. So it was not in harmony with its neighbors. It was a slave state in the north. And so that Maine came in as the non-slave state. So Maine and Missouri come into the Union on opposite sides of the slave issue, but Missouri is an anomaly, Missouri is a slave state above the line of latitude. So you can imagine that the people of Missouri knew that their condition was a little bit unusual, that their neighbors didn't match their status. So if you remember the history of the saints, Jackson County was found in Missouri, and there's this huge rush of Latter-day Saints out to Jackson County. Now we have a conflict brewing. We have an anti-slavery people primarily coming from northern states, going out to Missouri, which is a slave state with an anomaly. And the more we have these anti-slavery members of the church coming into Missouri, you can imagine the more they get extremely nervous. Their status is already conditional. And there's going to be elections, and pretty soon Latter-day Saints are going to be elected to positions, and they are traditionally an anti-slavery people living in a slavery state.
1: And we cannot underestimate the power of the documents. In the Revelations of the Restoration, the Lord says, it is not right that any man should be in bondage to another man. That's in our Doctrine and Covenants. And it flows
0: throughout the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And if we remember our conversation we had earlier about Hancock County in the 1843 election of Joseph Hogue to the seat in the Senate, when the people that have power in the states realize that you have thousands of people that vote in one block, that really brought the uh, microscope on the Latter-day Saints. Anytime you had a group of people that voted one way, I mean, you're going to be in for some challenges. So it was exacerbated in Missouri because we're clearly not having that pro-slavery stance, at least at that point. But there's the tension. A lot of
0: the conflict that happened in Missouri happened over slavery. And so you can imagine the bad taste in the mouth of the saints when they go to Salt Lake. They remember the conflict. They remember being persecuted, and a lot of that persecution had to do with slavery. So we've got to put Missouri on the table, that we were persecuted in Missouri over slavery. So now fast forward, next piece of information, let's go to Illinois. Now, it was a little different in Illinois, where we were predominantly an anti-slavery people living in an anti-slavery state. And in Illinois, another piece of information that's critical that Latter-day Saints understand.
1: Yeah. In the early church, there were individuals who were of African descent who were not only members of the church, but they actively held the priesthood. An African-American by the name of Walker Lewis, he joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 1840s. He was ordained an elder by William Smith. And another member of the church, an African-American by the name of Elijah Abel, was ordained an elder and then a member of the Seventy in 1836. And I do tip my hat to the historians that have dug this up. I mean, a lot of this stuff was not common knowledge for a lot of years. And historians have worked very hard to try to determine when the priesthood ban came to pass. And from the Gospel Topics essay, we read the following. In 1852, so this is eight years after Joseph Smith has been martyred. He's martyred in 1844. So in 1852, President Brigham Young publicly announced that men of black African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood, though thereafter, blacks continued to join the church through baptism and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Following the death of Brigham Young, subsequent church presidents restricted blacks from receiving the temple endowment or being married in the temple. Over time, church leaders and members advanced many theories to explain the priesthood and temple restrictions. None of these explanations is accepted today as the official doctrine of the church. Now, there are other historians that have pulled on the threads of this origin of the priesthood ban. In John Turner's book on Brigham Young, it's called Brigham Young Pioneer Prophet. He discusses this and another historian by the name of Angela Hudson In my opinion, if you take Turner and you take Hudson's work, to me, they've demonstrated that President Brigham Young put the ban in place as early as February of 1849. We're going to link their work in the show notes, and you can read it for yourself and decide for yourself. I'm going to sum up what their conclusions are and their historical evidence. And... I don't necessarily think what I'm about to talk about caused the priesthood ban, but I want to say that I think the events that happened prior to 1849 were an important catalyst to make this decision. So the issue concerning the priesthood ban may have been connected to the behavior of one individual, a man by the name of William McCrary. He was once a slave from Mississippi, and according to John Turner, McCrary, quote, escaped from slavery, and then moved to St. Louis, and then he was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo by Orson Hyde. After he was baptized, McCrary married a woman, a white woman, by the name of Lucy Stanton. And then after he was married to her, he relocated to Cincinnati for a while, and he kind of started his own congregation for a while, and he had a following. But after Joseph Smith is killed and the church goes to winter quarters, McCrary and his wife, Lucy, come to winter quarters. And this is where history gets a little bit muddled and you'll have to read the sources for yourself. But according to some historians, William McCrary starts practicing plural marriage and he falls out of favor with the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. So after he falls out of favor with the church, He was sealed to several white women in, quote, his own version of celestial marriage. That's according to a couple different historical sources. And after this happens, then there's a series of letters that take place in December of 1848 with William Appleby, who had recently served as the president of the church's eastern branches. And Appleby and Brigham, they communicate back and forth. And the question was, what do we do? as members of the church from different racial backgrounds choose to get married. And Appleby wrote to President Young, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, quote, I wish to know if this is to be the order of God or tolerated in the church to allow for amalgamation. And I would say many historians see this as a catalyst that caused Brigham Young to ask and answer this question. And the question was, what do we do when we're in a culture that clearly has culturally biased views? Of freed slaves. What do we do in a culture where slavery is not only legal, but it's encouraged in some places? And in states where it's not legal, the idea was taught culturally, the dogmatic view that African Americans were less than for some reason than other people that were of a different skin color. I mean, this was the culture of Brigham Young. This was the world that he lived in. But I think today he would have different cultural views because that was the zeitgeist of the time. That was their view. And so Brigham Young, as the president of the church, is being asked this question. He's had this experience with William McCrary, however you want to interpret that experience. Like, I wasn't there, but I read this stuff, and I see it's kind of causing, in the words of one historian, a lot of anxiety amongst the saints. They had lots of questions about this. And... My reading of section 107 verses 78, 79, and 80 is that when it comes to the most difficult business or the most difficult decisions or cases in the church, that the Lord has designated the president of the church to have the power to decide. It reads as follows. They shall have the power to decide upon the testimony according to the laws of the church. And after this decision, it shall be had in remembrance no more before the Lord, for this is the highest counsel of the church and a final decision upon controversies in spiritual matters. And so Brigham Young makes the statement that people of African descent are not to be ordained to the priesthood. According to John Turner, he states in February of 1849 that they were of, quote, the seed of Cain. Under Brigham Young's leadership, the church did not ordain black men as elders and did not allow black men or women to receive the endowment and did not seal the marriages of its few black members. And then Turner continues, quote, Although fragmentary documentation obscures the reasons for Young's hardening position, his revulsion over the specter of interracial procreation apparently displayed a major role in his thinking. Now, as I read the primary source documents as to what's happening at this time, I see it as a very difficult problem. I also see that just because we have this information, that doesn't mean we know everything. Ronald Esplin He disagrees with Turner and Hudson. Ronald Esplin was the managing editor of the Joseph Smith Papers Project and the former director of the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Latter-day Saint History at Brigham Young University. Clearly, he knows his history and we'll link his article in the show notes as well. And essentially what he says is he's open to the idea that this could have come from Joseph Smith. Now, I don't agree with Esplin, but this is what he says. He pushes the date back to as early as 1846. Now, that doesn't solve the problem because Joseph Smith isn't here. But then he says that it's his feeling that the doctrine was introduced by the prophet Joseph Smith in Nauvoo in 1843. But he stresses that he doesn't have the documentation to back up this claim. But... Joseph gives like 254 public discourses and of those 254 public discourses we have like 50 of them where we have a little bit of recording of what was said and then we have all the things Joseph Smith is teaching privately to the 12 that we just don't have records of and according to Esplin his view of Brigham Young is that Brigham Young wants to stay within those lines and that Brigham's going to teach and do the things that Joseph taught him to do and that Brigham wants to continue with the legacy and the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. And so Esplin's contention, and I I would agree with this part, is that we need to be careful. Historically, when we're trying to answer these questions, we have to just be okay with not knowing things. And so I'm going to disagree that Joseph's teaching this. I see no evidence for it, but just because there's no evidence doesn't mean I'm right. It just means we don't know. And so the way I'm going to view this, the way I'm going to try and package this, and the way I understand it today, this is my thinking today, 2021, is I see Brigham wrestling with this idea in the in a racially charged world, and Brigham Young certainly having his cultural biases makes the decision whereby freed Africans that join the church are not going to be allowed to go to the temple because you can't be endowed in the temple if you don't hold the priesthood if you're a male. When I first learned about the priesthood ban Bryce, I thought, why would anybody care if an African American male passes the sacrament? And then as I got older, I thought, no, this is not about the sacrament. This is about marriage and it's about authority and leadership. Leadership. Like, would I, and, and I'm not trying to judge anybody, but would a white member of the church in 1860 stand for a, having a black bishop? And as much as I hate to say this, that to say that people have these cultural biases, I mean, that was the reality. That's right. So with that in mind, like Brigham Young working through this, what I see is he enacts the ban as a way somehow to manage these cultural biases and to extend the opportunity for membership, but also to to deal with the factions in the church that maybe culturally aren't ready for the equality that the Book of Mormon engenders. And frankly for the equality that the Doctrine and Covenants advocates. So let me be clear. I want to make sure everyone
0: heard what Mike said, that Joseph Smith ordained black men to the priesthood. In Illinois, again, it was an anti-slavery people in an anti-slavery state. It didn't have the tension that Missouri had. But Joseph Smith ordained black men to the priesthood. And Brigham Young, out in Salt Lake initiates a ban on the priesthood. So there's that tension. And the question we begin to ask is why? Why does Joseph Smith seem to be very comfortable with black man holding the priesthood? And Brigham Young says, we need to withhold that. Let me throw one more piece on the table. And I do this reverently, but I think this is the piece that shakes a lot of people up that for years held on to the conclusion that maybe this was a revelation, that the Lord is enacting the ban. In 2013, the church came out with a new edition of the Scriptures, and I'm so grateful that they did because there are some additions in the 2013 Scriptures that really do shed light on this whole situation of the priesthood. At the beginning of Official Declaration 2, now if you have an old set of Scriptures pre-2013, Official Declaration jumps right into the to whom it may concern. It goes right into the statement that was read in General Conference. But if you have a newer version of the Scriptures, either electronically or in print, you have a paragraph that was added. I think that's very significant, that a paragraph has been added to Official Declaration 2 that I think poses some very significant information. I'm going to read the paragraph, but emphasize what I think we need to emphasize. It says the Book of Mormon teaches that all are alike unto God, including black and white, bond and free, male and female. Throughout the history of the church, people of every race and ethnicity in many countries have been baptized and have lived as faithful members of the church. During Joseph Smith's lifetime, a few black male members of the church were ordained to the priesthood. So we have officially, in our canon, put an introduction stating that Joseph Smith ordained black men to the priesthood. Then the entry says, early in its history, church leaders stopped conferring the priesthood on black males of African descent. And that's what Mike's been talking about. Somewhere in those late 1840s, early 1850s, Brigham Young initiates a ban on the priesthood for black male members now this sentence in the introduction in our scriptures. Church records offer no clear insights into the origin of this practice. I'm going to read that again so you can hear it in context. Early in its history, church leaders stopped conferring the priesthood on black males of African descent. Church records offer no clear insights into the origins of this practice. My take, now this is Bryce Dunford, my take on that is that the church is saying, we don't have evidence that this was a revelation. I believe, my opinion is that this church takes very serious the receiving of revelations. Joseph had a revelations book in which he recorded his revelations. The fact that nothing exists, that there's no official document stating the beginning of this practice. Now, that doesn't mean Brigham Young doesn't offer explanations to its origin. What I think the church is saying is we don't have a record of a revelation. Church records offer no clear insights as to the beginning of this practice.
1: Bryce, I just want to say I agree with you. I'm totally in this position— And then I still, it's like in the back of my head, I have Ron Esplin whispering, but Mike, there's so much we don't know. So while I sit, and I want to be clear, I agree with Bryce, but I'm also always have questions of, okay, but what don't we know? And I sit in the chair of not knowing most things. So yeah, but go on. But I just wanted to say, I agree, but I have questions.
0: And I raise that because I think church members, especially the ones at level one of ambiguity that I talked about a while ago. You know, the innocent optimists, they just say it was a revelation. God said so, and we obeyed. But there is no clear evidence of a revelation, and we simply obeyed. And I, I think that's why I raised the issue is perhaps some of us need to reexamine our conclusions because there really is no strong evidence that Brigham Young received a revelation and stood up and said, thus saith the Lord, it's a revelation and we're going to follow it. That becomes very clear from Wilford Woodruff, hey, the Lord has shown me, and I've had these visions, and he lays it on the saints to say, you now make a decision. There's none of that from Brigham Young. The absence of that compelling document may lead us to conclude, well, maybe I need to reexamine my assumptions. Maybe this wasn't something that God came down and dictated. But again, is the president of the church able to make decisions that he thinks are in the best interest of the church? He
1: certainly is. And and back to 107, section 107 opens up difficult situations And says to the president, you have the power to decide, right?
0: Again, I remind you of the brother of Jared and the boat and the light and the air. I think there are certainly some situations where God says to the prophet, you've got to simply drill a hole in the top and the bottom. This you have to do. I'm going to be very specific with these instructions. But there are other moments where like the light in the vessels, the Lord says, you decide. I think some people assume that everything a prophet does is direct revelation from Heavenly Father, as if every situation is an error situation. But we do need to allow for room for the Lord to say to a prophet, like he did to the brother of Jared, You decide. So the absence of clear records might suggest that this was not a direct revelation. As if the Lord is saying, You've got to do this. It may have been Brigham Young saying, I'm going to do what I think is best for the church. So I throw that out as one more piece of information. We were persecuted in Missouri. Slavery is a major, major divided issue in the United States. Joseph Smith ordained black men to the priesthood. Brigham Young Put a ban in place, and there doesn't seem to be clear evidence that it was a revelation,
1: thus saith the Lord, you've got to do this and Bryce, I'm open to Brigham Young having different predisposed views culturally that joseph doesn't have. i'm I'm okay with Brigham being his own person and having his own biases. And I think also Brigham's dealing with a different reality. Joseph is gone in eighteen forty four. Brigham's in a different circumstance. And
0: he's trying to build up a society out in the middle of a desert. Yeah. Now, one more piece of information let me throw out there that may come as a surprise. Fifty years after the original Pioneer Company arrives in Salt Lake, Cyrus Dallin makes a monument to that group of people. He lists the names of those in that company. I will never forget seeing this with my own eyes. At the very bottom of the list are three names, and then it says colored servant. Three slaves came into the Salt Lake Valley in the very first pioneer company. Slavery has arrived in Utah. Now, I know it wasn't Utah. Forgive me for calling it Utah. It will be Utah. But slavery has arrived in Utah. We have to see this situation, remembering Missouri, remembering what happened to the church in Missouri, and knowing that we came out to Utah to get away from the contentions of the United States, but we still have to deal with the United States. We're going to build a society out in the desert. We need supplies. We need friends. We need neighbors. And if Brigham Young comes out in opposition to the North and loses the support of the North or comes out in opposition to the South and loses the support of the South, I wonder if part of what was on his head is how do we survive in this desert if we alienate ourselves from half of the United States as they tear each other apart over this issue. So slavery has arrived in Utah with Brigham Young it is dividing the country. I can't imagine being in that situation. What do you do? If slavery is here in Salt Lake and we do nothing and just let it go, could that be seen as we are now a pro-slavery territory? And if that were the case, could we possibly lose the support of half the country? But if Brigham Young makes a statement and issues a declaration that Utah is anti-slavery, could it be that he alienates half the country? I can't imagine being in Brigham Young's position because I didn't live in that culture. But even what I know about that culture makes it difficult for me to say, well, what would you do if you were Brigham Young? You have three slaves arriving in Salt Lake in the very first Pioneer Company, and you know more are coming. So what do we do? we've got to survive and build a community, we can't alienate half the United States and still expect to survive out in this desert. So what do you do to remain kind of this neutral territory so that neither the North nor the South see you as an enemy or an opposing force? So let me just simply offer my assumption. And I'm going to be very clear. This is Bryce Dunford. This is not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I know some of you tune into talking Scripture because you're going to want to know, well, what's their take on this? With the church not necessarily saying, here's the conclusion that the church has jumped to, I've been left to say, well, what conclusion do I come to? Here's my conclusion as I've pondered what would I have done if I'd been in that situation. My conclusion is this, and again, this is completely my conclusion. If you disagree with it, that's totally fine. But it seems to me that the ban on the priesthood was a compromise to not alienate either half of the United States. If Brigham Young is as culturally biased as some people claim he was, especially those who have gone over to the pessimistic side. It seems to me the first thing he would have done, he would have segregated our congregations. He would have created black wards and white wards. That's what so many religions were doing in the United States. They were segregating their congregations. Brigham didn't do that. The church did not segregate congregations, nor did the church ever deny membership in the church at any point in the church's history a black could freely be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Membership was never denied. and It seems to me that if Brigham Young is what some pessimists claim he is, that's the first thing he would have done. He would have segregated our congregations. He would have denied membership. He did not do that. So it seems to me that Brigham was offering a compromise. There was no delineation between black wards and white wards. I think Brigham Young was saying, if you come to Utah with your slaves and they are members of the church, they will be in your ward. I think that
1: was a bold statement. And I think let's be clear that it's not like there were a lot of slaves in Utah. Right. It wasn't widespread. I mean, we're talking about a very small minority, but any slavery is bad. Like, it's just not acceptable. And neither is any kind of uh, distinguishing between the color of your skin saying you're better or worse than somebody because of your hair color or skin color. It's rather silly. But, boy, in 1850.
0: How many religions were segregated? Right. And Brigham Young never does that. He never says, you go in that room and we'll go in this room. He never draws the line and says, there's a separation between
1: you for most Christians, priesthood wasn't an issue. If you went to a Protestant church in the South or in the North, you just go to church, you hear a sermon, maybe you go to Sunday school and you go home. But it's different in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because priesthood is being sealed and family and keys. It's so much more than just oh, you're a pastor up at at the front and you've been ordained, you're an ordained minister. In our church, every male can hold the priesthood. And with what we believe about temple and families, it's just so much more entrenched in our doctrine. Yeah. So here I think is the compromise. Brigham Young says, we
0: will not segregate. We will not divide our congregation. But I think the compromise was that they won't be your bishop, They won't be general authorities. And I honestly believe that there were people in the church and out of the church to whom that was an important statement.
1: Bryce, I don't even think culturally many members of the church would have been ready
0: for that. Yeah. And I remind you that under Joseph Smith's leadership, Elijah Abel was ordained to the office of seventy. So could it be that Brigham Young's thinking was by withholding the priesthood, they won't be general authorities, they won't be bishops? And given that cultural bias, I wonder if Brigham was kind of conceding to that to say we still need to build the church. We are an infant church out in the desert, and we need to grow. And so my take on this, my conclusion is that poor Brigham Young was in an almost impossible situation. And he did take a stand by saying, they are welcome to join the church. Membership in this church is open to everyone and we're not going to segregate. And so I think that was his compromise. Do I believe that Brigham Young was as culturally biased as some I don't. I believe Brigham Young was an inspired man. I believe his talent was growing this church in the desert, establishing the roots of the kingdom. And in doing so, I think he built up a community where everyone in the United States felt like they could come and join, that he didn't alienate any major groups, and that Zion is a place that you can come to. I think Missouri weighed heavily on his mind taking a stand in Missouri cost us lives. And I think Brigham Young's goal was how do I deal with the culture of the day and still build up the kingdom of God?
1: And I think clearly members of the church struggled. They were human beings. Brigham isn't using those words like compromise. He's definitely taking a dogmatic approach to this and it's difficult. We're kind of in a logical circle, aren't we, Bryce? Because we disavow the things that were said and then we say, well, we don't know the reasons, but then we do have the reasons that Brigham Young gave, but we reject those reasons. And so it's like a logical circle that we just go round and round. And so I remember being a young man asking questions like, why would this happen? Why would God do this? And, and I don't take that position today. I don't take the position that God's doing this. I take the position of section 107 where the Lord says, Brigham, you have to make a most difficult decision. And so he does. And though we reject those theories, as as they're called, uh, clearly they were put forth.
0: Yeah. But I think if you really read Brigham Young's writings, I think Brigham Young clearly had an expectation that someday the band would be removed. He did. Absolutely. I think it's very clear in Brigham Young's mind that this was a temporary situation. That this was not a permanent solution. Brigham saw the day when the ban would be removed, which tells me that in his heart, he saw this as a temporary move to deal with a temporary situation that would eventually go away. Absolutely. And we say those things so that you can maybe have an open heart and open eyes. Let's avoid the two extremes of innocent optimism and pessimism and have open hearts and say, maybe there was some reason, maybe there was some explanation, maybe Brigham Young in a very difficult situation was trying to do what he felt was best for the church. So that's going into the ban. So now let's fast forward to Spencer W. Kimball and coming out of the ban. Because what I know about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, bless our hearts, is that things very quickly become traditions. And we respect former leaders and quite often just carry out their policies as tradition. And so at some point, maybe the reasons for beginning the ban have gone away. And we have this tension of coming out. How do we come out of the ban and enter one of the sweetest souls I have ever had the privilege of loving? And that was Spencer W. Kimball. I think he was the man, and this was the moment. And now we're going to transition out of that ban. Yeah.
1: I want to refer to the book Lengthen Your Stride by Edward Kimball, it's about President Kimball's administration. And four chapters out of the book deal specifically just with this issue. I can't say enough good about the work that Edward Kimball did in putting this together, because what he did was he got into the history of the things that happened right before the ban was removed. For example... There were individuals who were getting patriarchal blessings prior to the removal of the ban of African descent that were promised that they would enjoy all the blessings of the priesthood. For example, in 1973, Oscar McFarland, who was a patriarch in Covina, California, promised Theodore Britton that he would get all the blessings of the priesthood. And he even contacted President Kimball and said, "Is is this okay that I gave this patriarchal blessing because the ban was in place?" And President Kimball responded with a note that said, "That is a fine blessing." And so there's a lot of these things historically that were happening. To African Americans, but also to saints that lived in Africa. There's marvelous historical stories about the saints in Africa as they read the Book of Mormon and had desires to come to be members of the church and to have priesthood and to be led. And there was a real dilemma that the church had. How do we grow the church in a nation where we have this ban in place? What do we do? And so you can read these four chapters for yourself and see all the things that happened historically as President Kimball worked to. And wrestled with the Lord. I also want to say and give a shout out to Greg Prince's book called David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. And there's a chapter in that book that is a, just a game changer for me because we read that in the 1950s, David O. McKay wrestled with this very thing as early as the 1950s, and he pushed the Lord and approached him in prayer. And in my opinion, and I think Greg Prince would agree, David O. McKay put things in position to be prerequisites for the revelation. And there's a lot of things historically that he did. You're going to have to go read Greg Prince's book, but I would encourage you to do so because understanding these tensions that were involved is crucial. Now, I want to share a story that has deep meaning to me, and I certainly don't know what it means to be a black person in America. I'm not. But I read the words of these great African American to me they're heroes. And I read their stories, and Bryce, it moves me. It just moves me deeply. This book is by Isabel Wilkerson. It fundamentally changed me. And this book is called The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. And what this book is talking about is what it means to be an African-American in the 1940s and the 1950s, and how there was a massive migration from the Southern states. As African-Americans started to have more civil rights, there was a massive movement to California, and many of them went to the Northern states. And there's a chapter in this book called Disillusionment, and it tells the story of a family, a man by the name of Harvey Clark. He served in World War II, and he was a college-educated African-American. And Harvey just wanted to have a place to raise his kids. And so he moved to Cicero in 1951. And it was just a block over the Chicago line. And I've, I've been in Cicero. I've walked these streets. And so it has a lot of meaning for me. And he was so excited when he moved his family into this third-story apartment to finally have a good place to raise his kids And it was a clean place. And he had to pay more for his apartment than white people did. But he paid it. And when he moved his family in, as soon as they started coming in, it was the third week of June in 1951. And as the moving truck pulled in, as they were unloading their things, people started to line up and down the streets. And they said to them, get out of Cicero and don't come back. And it eventually got so bad that... In July of 1951, over 100 housewives and grandmothers came to protest the Clarks moving in, and they literally were shouting them down. And a mob stormed their apartment and took their furniture and threw it out the window and then burned their marriage license and their baby pictures and tore up the carpet and destroyed all of their furniture and all of their things. They even ripped the radiator out of the wall. And she writes, quote, The mob destroyed what had taken them nine years to acquire. So after they burned their things, the next day four thousand people came to the apartment complex and they burned the building to the ground. And when the fire trucks came to put the fire out, the mobbers threw rocks at the firefighters. And it got so bad that the governor of the state of Illinois Adlai Stevenson, had to call in the National Guard to put down the mob. And that's in a northern city in 1951. And all they wanted to do was have a home. I'm saddened, but I think understanding the cultural tension puts things in perspective, as difficult as it is. Can you imagine if this man moved in as a bishop, what they would do? This isn't about authority. This isn't a family that's trying to be your bishop. They just want to live in your neighborhood. And it's in the north. And it's in 1951. And the reason why I share this story is because it has everything to do with what Edward Kimball wrote. So if you go to the 23rd chapter of Lengthen Your Stride in this chapter, and it's difficult reading, but he includes some statements that members of the church made to President Kimball. When President Kimball initiated the release of the ban on priesthood, there were members of our church who said horrible things to the prophet and horribly mean things to him. And I don't understand it. Like, it just doesn't fit in my mind, in my culture. But as I read The Warmth of Other sons and I try to put my head into the world of what did it mean to live back then during this incredibly racially charged culture, I see the difficulties. And I'm saddened. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're of African-American descent and I've offended you, I'm sorry. Or if the church has offended you, I'm deeply sorry. It just makes me sad that we've had to have these things historically. And I know that's part of the human condition. Humans hurt each other. And it tears me up. But I'm so grateful that we're in a new space. And even saying that, I know in 2021, racism isn't fixed. And I don't have the answer other than to say, my goal is to not be racist. But I'm grateful that President Kimball received that revelation. And even in the midst of it, it was difficult, even for some members of the church. So with that, let's talk about where the church is today. And to do this, let's
0: just read the Gospel Topics essay. Let's let the church make the church's statement. Mike and I have tried to share our personal conclusions, but let's end with the church's official statement and, again, the Book of Mormon's official statement. So the church ends the topical essay with a paragraph called The Church Today. The church proclaims that redemption through Jesus Christ is available to the entire human family on the conditions God has prescribed. It affirms that God is no respecter of persons and emphatically declares that anyone who is righteous, regardless of race, is favored of Him. The teachings of the church in relation to God's children are epitomized by a verse in the second book of Nephi. The Lord denieth none that cometh unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. All are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. That's the church today. And if I can add my two cents to that, this is just me, I would plead that regardless of however it came to pass and whatever the reasons were and whatever conclusions Brigham Young came to, may we today be a unified people. I remind everyone of the two greatest commandments, love God and love neighbor. It is time to stop the divisions among us. We are preparing the world for the coming of the Savior, which means we have to be a unified people and not divided, not divided by race, not divided by culture, not divided by gender. Let's be a unified people. Let love of others be what characterizes the Latter-day Saints. Amen. As the Lord said back in the law of the church, thou shalt live together in love insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. May we be that kind of people. May this declaration go beyond the fact that now all worthy males can receive the priesthood. May this declaration go further and say, can we become like the fourth Nephi saints where there are no more ites? Can we become the people that have no ites and no division among them because of the love of God that was shed forth in their hearts? May we be that people. And with that, we come to a conclusion of two very ambiguous topics, plural marriage and blacks in the priesthood. They do require a little examination and a little churning inside us. May we all have open hearts and open eyes, recognize that we do have a history filled with human beings who are trying to do their very best. I am grateful for Brigham Young and the early saints and the many good things that come into my life because of them. I am willing to open my eyes and my heart to the situation they found themselves in. We hope you will find peace in your conclusions and the assumptions that you come to as you open your eyes and open your hearts. And with that, we will end these topics.
1: And we'll see you next week when we cover the Proclamation to the World and the Family. Thank you for sharing your time with us this week.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.